Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. It's Juneteenth, it's Friday, it's time for this week's edition of the podcast. Bert Glandon retired at the College of Western Idaho in May after overseeing the college during an almost uninterrupted 12-year period of growth. CWI has been one of the fastest growing community colleges in the nation. I sat down to talk to uh, President Glandon about his time at CWI, his career in community colleges, what he sees as the role of community colleges going forward. And we also talked a little bit about music. Here's what he had to say. Well, President Glandon, thank you for taking the time to join us this week. Um, a lot I could ask you about, about your 12 years at CWI, but it's been such a time of change for your college and for the community that you serve. What are the biggest changes that you've experienced that, that really jump out at you as you look back on it? Well, Kevin, I, thank you very much for allowing me to have this interview, too. It's, it has been a thrill. Uh, it actually has been an awesome thrill, and I got to tell you, the last 12 years have been amazing. I've got over 40 years in higher education, but the last 12 have really been the epitome of what it's all about in terms of serving students and making things happen. Uh, coming to coming back to Boise, actually, and being able to work with a startup college like CWI with the kind of community support. I, I don't. I've never, I don't think I've ever been in a community in the other five colleges I've been involved in where the community has rallied around the college, uh, the way that C people have rallied around CWI, and I think that made a significant difference in terms of our success, particularly in those first four or five years when we didn't have facilities, we didn't have buildings, we didn't have classrooms, and we even had competitive uh, for-profit institutions offer us up classrooms. We had business and industry people come in and say, how can we help? And I truly think that that was a part of the astronomical growth that we occurred literally within those first four or five years. I mean, it was amazing. Was it different starting up a community college? I mean, you were here virtually from the startup. You came fairly soon after the launch, after the voter approval. How did that change the dynamic? Being at the very start is you have no history, which, you know, I, I early on, I kind of said, you know, it was great because we didn't know what we couldn't do. So we were doing things that other schools thought was impossible. And uh, everything from the faculty stepping up and making uh, national award winners out of students that never thought they would do certain things to the fact that all of a sudden we had faculty and staff say, well, why don't we try this? Well, why don't we try that? And it was like, holy mackerel, we're, we're, we're pioneers, not only in getting a brand new community college up and running, but we're pioneers in terms of saying those first four or five years, the faculty, the staff, and even the student government and student coming in, were saying, why can't we do this? Why don't we do that? And we were challenging ourselves to take a look at how do we deliver higher education differently? Uh, not you know not just like a business, but how do we offer it differently to better serve students, to better meet the needs of the community, and to better be better meet business and industry? Because quite frankly, a lot of communities that I've been involved in before business and industry, there's kind of two different languages. You got the language of business, and then you got the language of higher education. Mm -hmm. Well, for the first time ever, I was able to deal with people that are saying, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not what we meant. Here's what we meant, and business would come in and say. And faculty would turn around and say, okay, wait a minute, we're not hearing it correctly. As a brand new startup college, that can happen. In a 40 or 50 year old college, it is tough to break those traditions down 
and break through that that uh, old standards of oh no, no we've always done it this way no i know what they want here's what i'm going to deliver to them and instead of trying to sell them something it was a matter of okay what do they need and how do we get there differently your college's growth and the treasure valley's growth are pretty much interlocked uh, what were the challenges that you faced in helping the community deal with its growth? Well, I, and I have to tell you that that was one of the biggest challenges. We were growing so fast, Kevin, and uh, even you know even among the administrators, they would come in and say, "How much more can we do?" I mean, you know, uh, we are. It, it is unbelievable the kinds of challenges that we're taking on semester after semester, especially in those early years when we were doubling and tripling in size every four months, every semester we were doubling up again. And it was a real challenge to sit down and say, okay, how do we handle it? And how do we talk to our community, to our students? How do we deal with business industry to say, here's what we're doing, here's where, how we're trying to do it. And it, it, it was really a mutual admiration society, but it was a mutual effort to sit down and say, look, the western treasure valley is going through the same astronomical growth that we're going through they're going through similar challenges not having the infrastructure not having everything in place not being able to adjust quickly but again i think it was really that synergism of both the community the business the students and the college itself sitting there saying okay how do we do it let's figure it out let's do the best we can do with what we have and then make the adjustments as quickly as we can it, it really was a community effort. And, you know, glad to say it's a community college. Believe me, this was a true community college startup. And it was a community effort to make it as successful as it was to, as it is today. So you were spending years adapting and adjusting on, on the fly. And then the pandemic comes along and it forces a whole different level of adaptation and change. Talk first about the adaptation that you had to make in terms of delivering education to your students. Well, that, that was absolutely kudos to everybody. Um, I, I will never forget the Thursday. It was a Thursday that we were in cabinet, or Wednesday, excuse me, it was Wednesday we were in cabinet. And the five administrators were sitting around and we were, as we usually do for three hours in cabinet meeting. And we got notification in the middle of that meeting about 11 o'clock in the morning, we got notification that the pandemic had hit us. Right. And we had several classrooms and we had several situations immediately. And I, it really was triage. I, I have never seen a group of administrators so uh, activate so quickly and say, okay, uh, we're coming into spring break anyway, so let's move there more quickly. And let's declare, and we immediately within, uh, we worked through the weekend, we worked through Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we worked through a game plan uh, remotely, but we worked through a game plan with us to sit down and say, let's get the faculty set together, let's get the staff together, we know we're going to shut down. I mean, we, we're being challenged with CDC and other places saying right. we will shut down. It was that week in March where everything changed for everybody. Everything changed overnight. So literally uh, between... Thursday and the next Monday, we had made some significant decisions with the support of our faculty and staff. And actually with students being fully aware and notifying, we're shutting down, we're going totally remote. Remote. We're also, we had been, we were about 30% uh, online, pure online to begin with. 
and another 37 percent with what would you call hybrid, mm-hmm. partially online, partially off. And the faculty rallied around, and I'll never forget Denise meeting with the faculty senate and with the various divisions and saying, we don't know how long we're going to be remote, but this does not look good. It looks like we need to be fully remote as quickly as possible. So we declared to our students, uh, we said, look, we're going to take a two-week spring break, not a one-week spring break. And in those two weeks, our faculty are committed to coming in, to working remotely and to coming in, working with small groups, complying with CDC, complying with the guidelines, and we are going to guarantee our students that when we open back up fully remote, in two weeks from now, we'll open up and we will guarantee them that they will be able to finish their coursework by June or by the end of June so that they aren't going to lose any credits, they aren't going to lose any of their coursework, none of their classes, we're going to make sure we deliver everything. In that time frame, I've never seen this happen with a, uh, of course, we've never had a pandemic like this. Uh, but it was a group of people that really rallied and said, of course we can do this. We can figure out how to do this. We're, we're partially there now already. That group, in the next two weeks, put together a game plan and was able to deliver all of our coursework online. We had full online delivery, and we guaranteed them online support, student support and otherwise, to make sure everybody got that could, that could possibly do it, that didn't get sick or didn't have other issues, that get their coursework done before the end of June so that they could get up and running. The other amazing thing to me was, as we were talking through this remotely, uh, we turned on a dime and also said, let's pivot. If this is the way it's gonna be for three months, six months, nine months, whatever, or we didn't anticipate a year at that point, but we knew things were getting bad when we started seeing the numbers. We opened for summer school on time, on track, on target. And we opened with online, face-to-face, hybrid, high-flex, five different delivery systems we had worked on, and we opened for summer. And again, we had, you talk about community. We had business and industry that rallied around us and said, look, we know that for your welding instructors, your welding students, they got to get certified or they, it isn't any good. You know, they can get whatever degree they want, but they can't. Nurses have to go to clinical. You, you have a bunch of these uh, career and technical programs that need uh, support from business and industry to make it work. And they did. We had faculty and staff working Saturdays and Sundays certifying welding students. We had nursing students working Saturdays and Sundays. We had both hospitals working with us in collaboration and cooperation. We had our um, ITC, the Idaho, the forensic science and those other kinds of areas. We had business and industry coming to us and saying, how do we help you assure that your students are gonna get their coursework? And how do we help you assure that you can get a bridge program in place this summer? You're gonna have to have some on face-to-face. Now the face-to-face, our physical facilities, uh, Jeff Flynn, physical facilities guy under the direction of Fred Brown, um, literally went in and said, we bought sanitizers, we bought foggers, we bought, uh, we did, we, we really invested heavily before, before we heard about herd money or the, or the CARES money that was coming from the federal government. So by June, we opened up with a full course for summer school where we could offer face-to-face and comply with all the CDC guidelines, face masks, social distancing, sanitization. We had open computer labs that were cleaned before they went in, complained after each one used them, fogged at night. I mean, we were overkill. We were like a hospital almost in terms of our sanitation and how we handled that. 
I, I will tell you that there were some schools that didn't open for summer school. And the shocking part of the whole of that whole situation, we felt that we would have a downturn in enrollment. And we had actually an enrollment increase in summer of 2020. No school had actually had an increase in enrollment. We had an increase in enrollment in summer of 2020. And I think basically it was because we were assuring students you can get it. We'll figure out how to get it face-to-face, high-flex, online, or however we can get it done. And students came to us because all of a sudden it was like, well, CWI is open and CWI is delivered. And they figured out how to do it. But, but overall, it's been an enrollment challenge for CWI. It's been an enrollment challenge for community colleges around the state and around the country. Are those students going to come back? Absolutely. I, you know, we're looking at, uh, I know that they're already preparing this summer. I'm not, because I'm retired, I'm not on the inside. I don't, I don't have the real numbers or data anymore. So, but I know that Denise uh, Aberle Kanata, who's the interim president, and I know that Craig Brown, the executive vice president of operations, they are positioning CWI for another increased enrollment growth because we believe that that actually, because of the attitude that we're going to deliver, we're going to make it happen, and we're going to serve students, and we're going to serve the community and business and industry, that permeates, we can do it, we're going to figure out how to make it happen. Because what you saw with enrollment, it's kind of counter counter to what you usually see in a downturn. Usually community colleges really see an uptick in enrollment as people go back to go back to school to develop job skills. It didn't happen this time around. No, you're right. You're right. It was a different trend, and it really kind of tested everybody's mettle about, we always knew that if, if unemployment was up, uh, I mean, if there was high unemployment, students would come back to school, especially those who wanted to update their skills. But, you know, you look around right now, I don't know any place, I, if you drive around town anywhere, there's hiring. There, we will hire. We'll hire. Everybody will hire whoever they can hire. And yet still we have students that are uh, coming back to school to pick up skill sets to move forward. I think the other part of it, too, is what we offer. I think uh, short courses, uh, six-week courses, uh, skill set courses, not just programs in forensic science, not just programs in cybersecurity, but actually here's a skill set that you can take and advance yourself to the next level. So I think we're finding that the kinds of programming CWI is directing itself at and starting to offer is advantageous and it's uh, appealing to the customer, to the student, the customer, and it's appealing to business and industry because a lot of what we're dealing with too is we do a lot of customized training for business and industry and we're turning that also around to say, okay, if this is a skill set that you need today, are you going to need it down the road as well? Do you need it for 30 people or do you need it for 300 people? And of course, the great thing about the Western Treasure Valley is the growth factor is still feeding us. I mean, there's still people moving into this valley, and there's still a need not just for the traditional student, but even more so for the non-traditional student. We're, we're gaining ground on getting more and more non-traditional students that want, they, they may not be looking for a full BA degree right away. They may want to say, I, I want to get my, I want to get back and I need to get a skill set. I need to get these skills to get a better job or to improve my position. And then I'll work on a degree as I move further down my career path. As you see it now, as you kind of take a step back from it, what do you think is the long-term prognosis for community colleges, not just CWI, but community colleges in general? Where does the future take this sector? 
Well, I think, quite frankly, uh, community colleges are the future. I, I think they're the future higher education delivery. And I, that's nothing against the universities. I, I, universities are, we're never going to replace universities. Uh, universities are going to be needed. They're going to be an absolute uh, uh, need for the university structure. I think that what's going to happen in the country in the coming future, though, Kevin, is going to be that I'm not sure we need all the universities that are in place today. In fact, there's, if you look at a lot of the trends, even the Chronicle of Higher Ed, the Wall Street Journal, a lot of the major uh, analysis right now is we're going, there are a lot of universities that are going to uh, depart. Uh, they're not going to, they're going to lose their market share. They're not going to be able to afford it. They're not going to, whatever it might be. And quite frankly, community colleges are what I look at as the real future of higher ed because one, we're community-based. Two, we're affordable access. Three, we're agile, lean, and adjustable. And we can quickly pivot on things and meet the community needs, both business and industry, student and community-based needs. And I think that's where higher education is going to be moving. It, we are never gonna get rid of universities. Universities are always gonna have a role to play. I think you're also gonna find something else, uh, I hope, I don't know for sure, but a lot of what I've read and looked at, I think you're going to find a stronger alliance and collaboration between K-12 and community colleges. Dual credit in the state of Idaho has exploded, and giving sophomores, juniors, and seniors in high school the opportunity to take college coursework to help advantage themselves. And of course, parents figured it out real quick when they realized, oh my gosh, I could save $30,000, $40,000 by getting them to dual credit and getting them for the first two years of school before they actually get out of high school. It's many, some, not all, but some that are capable of doing that. I think that marriage, that collaboration between K-12 and the community college is going to be very, very advantageous uh, for the citizens coming down the road. And, and I it's, think it's gonna be advantageous because the students are gonna ask for it. And the students are gonna realize what a great advantage this is uh, you know, their junior senior year. I'm not saying it's, it's. I'm not saying it's a waste, but I'm saying there's a lot of time in there that the the, the serious student or the serious learner. We're all going to be lifelong learners, but the serious learner is going to say, "Hey, this is the way I can keep going and be challenged and get new things and position myself." And, and it's interesting to hear you talk about the value of dual credit as a tool to get students onto your campus and in other campuses, because you've said in the past that there is a cost issue or there has been a cost issue for community colleges to deliver those dual credit courses. But in the big picture, it's, it's something advantageous to the community colleges. If you get the cost factor, right? Not that we're totally philanthropical, but the fact (laughs) of the matter is we're in business too. But the fact of the matter also is when you see your cousin and I, I apologize for using the term customer. I know that makes faculty really upset, but your student or your, your, the people you're trying to help, uh, the at-risk student, the underprivileged student, that the more you can help them realize and give them not just hope, shallow hope, but give them serious hope that they can do things, they can improve their life, they can improve their economic condition, that helps, you know, all boats rise, all boats rise. Mm-hmm. And that helps the entire society when all of a sudden you're poor and you're underprivileged or whatever, as they're coming up, that elevates everybody and makes makes for a much better society and a much better world. So I, I've got to shift gears. Um, I, as I was reading a press release about your, your retirement, 
I had one of those moments reading a press release where I, I was like, I had no idea of this. <laughs> you, you're a musician, you were a musician, and you briefly were a drummer with Paul Revere and the Raiders. There's got to be an, an anecdote <laughs> that you can share from those days. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know who picked up on that, but uh, I was, a, you know, I was a, I was a hotshot kid. I, I played nine instruments coming up through uh, high wow. school. And I was actually, my mom was really pleased because we played in the Seattle Youth. I had an older brother and a younger brother. And I played in the Seattle Youth Symphony. That just pleased her to death. And then, of course, like most 17, 18, 19-year-olds, my older brother and I decided we'd start playing bars. And um, that didn't thrill my mom and my dad a whole lot. They thought the music lessons were totally gone for not. And, uh, but, it, but quite frankly, back then in the 60s, it was a that was, that was a way to make a pretty good living to get through college and pay for everything. Yeah. And uh, I did the irony of ironies was that one night I got a call. I called my older brother and I said the union, the musicians union called them, and they had a they had a, a spring playing of graduation thing or whatever. Uh, we were in Seattle, and so they got on the ferry boat and they were going to go out around the water. Well, the drummer for this group, uh, which turned out to be Paul Revere and Ray. Right. The drummer for this group was either got the flu or got sick or realized he didn't want to get on a boat. I don't know. I'm not sure what the situation was. But I got the call, and, it, you know, it was a great time. I had a great time. We went out there. I thought they were a little crazy. It was early. It was really early in their career. I mean, it, it was early on. And so when my brother asked me, I came back. I said, no, they're pretty good. They're, they're, you know, they're okay. They're pretty good. They're an up-and-coming band. I said, but they, they dress really crazy. And the one night that the lead is just wacko. I mean, he just out, out to lunch. Well, a year or two later, where I don't know, my brothers and I were playing some gig somewhere, and all of a sudden they they cut their they had made the first uh, cut. They got their album out. They got their first record, forty five out. And I said, "That's the band I played with." In <laughs> my brother goes, "What the heck? Why didn't you stay with him?" <laughs> I said, "No, I was only invited for the one gig." So I don't know. It's just the one time. But it, you know, those things happen in your life, and you wake up one day and go, "Wow." Everything could have been. I would have never made it to college if I'd done that. That would have never been. But I think everything we do prepares us for the next thing we do. So there, there had to be lessons out of that whole process. Yeah, you know, Kevin, I got to tell you, I, in my career, in my lifetime, um, I was teaching a speech class one time, and they, oh no, I, I was, I was a dean, the provost, and I was teaching as adjunct part time, and. They'd ask me, well, you know, you're an academic, you've always done this. I said, you know what? You'd be hard pressed to name a job that, you know, I've been a, I've been a garbage collector, I've been a janitor, I've been a fry cook, I've been a radio, I worked, I worked in radio and TV for a while. I, you know, played in band, of course, that really shocked them. And I, you know, I started listening. I said, name something that you, you know, think. I worked on the railroad. My dad worked on the railroad, so I got summer jobs on the railroad. Every job I had, you're right, Kevin, absolutely. Every job I had gave me one more skill set and uh, one more thing to learn that could help me better understand, and particularly coming back into education, better understand at-risk students. And better. I didn't do that well in college either. I mean, you know, it took me a, actually what happened to me was in, um, I had my first year of college and then I won the lotto and it wasn't the lotto like today. It was in the 60s, you win the lottery. It means that you were drafted. You got a low right. lottery number. And so I spent two years on active duty in the Army. Uh, and when I came back, boy, I tell you, I was focused then. I, then I did real well in college, getting through 
because I'd matured, I'd grown up, I'd had, you know, got a lot of the things out of the way and wanted to do something with my life. Well, now you get to do whatever you want. You get to go into a well-earned retirement. And thank you for taking some time to, to talk about, you know, your your experience, your your, your thoughts, your uh, your outlook for higher education going forward. Thank you. Well, Kevin, thank you for having me on, and I really appreciate it. Again, that was Bert Glandon, who retired in May as president of the College of Western Idaho. That's going to wrap it up for the podcast this week. I do hope you will check in at idahoednews.org starting on Monday. We were talking about enrollment and college enrollment during the interview with President Glandon. That is a topic that I've been looking at very closely. Starting Monday, I'm going to have a five-part series looking at college enrollment during the pandemic. What happened with the numbers? Why did students stay? Why did students stay home? And is it a blip or is it a sign of a bigger trend? I talked to college administrators, but I also talked to students about their experiences and their decisions. That series will launch on Monday, so check it out at idahoednews.org. Also follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We tweet out our links and we tweet out any breaking news bulletins as, as things develop. Follow us on Facebook, join the conversation there, and check back next Friday for another edition of the podcast. Until then, this is Kevin Richard. Have a good weekend. 